This is a Media Lab podcast. Dave, why are you just staring at me creepily over there in your beach chair? Don't don't I look young? I I've painted my face. Oh, is that what that is? I thought that was like your facial cream cleanser for like nice open pores. But I love you. <laughs> On a rinky-dink spaceship headed back to Earth, Kyle and Dave are stuck on board with an evil machine. This giant robot is forcing them to watch films it picks. If they don't obey, then it'll be the end of the world. Again. This is mostly Kyle's fault, but he's not going to face an apocalypse alone, especially not on this ship that seems to be held together with tape and imagination. This is Kyle and Dave versus The Machine. Welcome to Kyle and Dave vs. The Machine. My name is Kyle. I thought your name was Tetsuo. I'm Dave. And I'm The Machine. Also, I'm Creeped Out. A podcast where a sentient machine was forcing us to watch movies in order to prevent it from initiating the apocalypse. And then another apocalypse happened. Somehow, it's used its powers to transport us across time and space. So now we're on our way back to Earth. The machine still threatens our lives if we don't review the films it asks us to. And we do kind of tend to talk about the ideas of the movie rather than the movie itself. Today, we're going to be watching the movie Death in Venice. Two great artists of the 20th century. Thomas Mann, the writer. Lucchino Visconti, the filmmaker. Two artists combined to tell the story of an artist. As we always do here at the very beginning, a big thank you to our patrons, Green Girl YYC and the podcast, It's a Conspiracy. But as far as this movie goes, Dave, are you at all familiar with this movie, with the source material, or even with this director? No. Okay, so you are not a film <laughs> fan is what you're trying to say. Not a film fan. Well, we'll see. in some of the background material, I feel like I should have known more about the lead in this film. Mm-hmm. Because he's fucking incredible. But uh, no, never heard of this film. Never heard of the book. Never knew about the director until I researched it for this podcast. Yeah. Uh, so I have to say I am also not very familiar with the source material with this movie. I do know this director from some other films that he has done. Specifically The Leopard, which is if you look on the top 100 films of all time, it usually appears somewhere within that top 100 list. Uh, but yeah, I, I don't know a whole lot about like his backstory, that sort of thing. I, I will also say, though, I know a little bit about this movie. I, I kind of referenced this last week, which was that there is a documentary that is coming out uh, about the young boy who's in this movie, the young teenager that's in this movie, uh, kind of becoming famous based off of his appearance in this film. I really wanted to be able to see it, but it was playing at the online Sundance Film Festival. And as a Canadian, it was super hard to try and actually get a way to actually watch that film. So I wasn't able to. But it is coming out sometime this year. So I'm, I'm looking forward to be able to watching that documentary because I think it will be kind of revelatory about what was going on with it. But I really don't know anything about this. So I'm kind of going in blind with this movie, but it's very well regarded, Dave. I'm sure we're going to be in for a great time. I'm I'm here to be titillated, to be entertained. Oh, 
and I can't wait. No, I don't. I don't think you know what titillated means, Dave. <laughs> All right. Well, this is sooner than normal, but let me go and thank some sponsors. And then when we return, we'll be talking a little bit more about death in Venice. Hey, everyone, just Kyle breaking into the conversation one more time to tell you about some of the people that help make this show continue to go. I have to apologize because you're about to hear me get kind of upset when we return back to the show. So uh, a fair warning, you get to hear mad kyle for maybe the very first time but i hope everyone is doing well spring has sprung here in calgary it seems like there is a, a light at the end of the tunnel with the pandemic that is still raging around us but if you ever want to uh, pick me up just know that you're not a deluded man lusting after a small child inside of a cholera epidemic but i suppose i should tell you that kyle and dave versus the machine is a proud member of the alberta podcast network locally grown, community supported. The Alberta Podcast Network promotes and supports Alberta-made podcasts and connects their audiences with Alberta-based businesses and organizations. This episode of Kyle and Dave vs. the Machine is brought to you by Career Essentials, a new podcast from techlifetoday.ca and Nate. Career Essentials offers real-world advice and insight into different careers and career paths. It features the stories and experiences of Nate alumni with lessons for everyone. Discover perspectives, tools, and tips essential to career growth and success, no matter what stage you're at in your career journey. A recent episode you might find interesting features Jennifer Stang, who explains why she switched from a planned career in medicine to baking and owning Edmonton's La Boule Patisserie and Bakery. She also shares how to recognize that maybe you're on the wrong career path and why you shouldn't ignore the signs. Find Career Essentials on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also find it at techlifetoday.ca forward slash podcast. This week we're also brought to you by the Alberta Podcast Network, so let's go and listen to one of our other great shows. Sticking on? I mean, it's been a while. Welcome to the Turf District Podcast, where we huddle up and talk all things Edmonton football team. And we are a part of the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown, community supported. I'm Andrew. I'm Superfan Mike. And I'm Commissioner K. We used to have a different name, much like the team, and now we are relaunching the rebranded podcast starting next week. We will cover player and, as it seems, coach signings team news and you know like when we play and when we actually have a team name <laughs> and we will catch up with people from the team the alumni the fans and everyone around the cfl we might talk a little bit of history too really weird plus we'll have new shirts coming too join us every two weeks starting february 2nd 2021 and every week once we have football back find us on twitter at the turf district on facebook at the turf district podcast and on ig at the turf district YouTube Live on Monday nights and the full pod everywhere you find podcasts on Tuesdays. Join the huddle and remember, you can't catch footballs with your face and we will absolutely talk to you next week. Dave, I'm very angry. <laughs> what I'm what could you possibly be angry about? I, I think that we might get a bunch of letters after this review that we're about to get into because i'm i'm very mad i'm not gonna lie i'm so <laughs> mad at watching this movie and 
it seems to get a pass from a lot of reviewers and critics and stuff. So I, I before I get into a little bit of a rant here, can you just tell me your immediate thoughts on this movie? By the way, we're not doing spoiler sections starting in this review and going forward. <laughs> we're so just going for the meat. Just go the for meat it. And the meat and the potatoes. Yeah, I feel, I feel gross. I did have a chuckle thinking about how there was a Rudy Giuliani moment. Uh, yes, yeah, there is. The leaking uh, <laughs> Yeah, the leaking hair dye. Hair dye. Uh, no farting, but it might have just been off mic. This is a very hard movie to digest. You're not supposed to eat it, Dave. It's upsetting. It's unsettling. You know, uh, it, it has a lot of strange chronological issues where I get lost into, is it a memory? Am I really following a story? And then, of course, the, the big issue of uh, pedophilia. You know, mm-hmm. the obsession that starts off with uh, a man. You know, what's really hard is he's got a family, he's got a wife, he's got a daughter. There's tragedy, we learn later. He's in Venice on a stress assignment. His, his daughter dies. Like that's yeah. part of the reason why he he's wife. coming to Venice. And his wife, sorry. Yeah, both of them die. So he's coming to Venice. Yeah, yeah. they don't really talk about the timing. He, they make him look quite young when those tragedies occur. So I don't know if it's a... If it's a oh, yeah. that's true. Yeah, younger. I'm conflating the book plot and the, and the movie plot. And that's the thing. Okay. Yeah. I mean, not that I've read... Did you read the book? I did not, but okay. I have read the synopsis and... For, honestly, for the most part, this is a pretty faithful retelling. Yeah, well, I'll get simple. I'll get into the couple different things that they change in the movie. Um, yeah, and then he appears in Venice on a, a sabbatical, if you will, and uh, becomes obsessed and super creepy about a beautiful boy. And, and that is how they describe it, right? He falls in an in infatuation with a beautiful boy. Yeah. They say boy. And I think it's important that we keep referring to it because even the actor... Bjorn Adresen or Adresen uh, was 15 when they recorded this movie. So, yes, young boy, uh, old man falling in love with him. Dave, here's the thing is that intellectually, I think I understand what this is trying to drive at. And especially reading up on what the novel does, it is very clear that what they're trying to do is have this intellectual conversation about the nature of aesthetic beauty and, and, and worth. The thing is that it gets wrapped up in the reality that, again, this is a 40 to 50-year-old man essentially falling in love with a teenage boy in the most creepy way, like just staring at him for so much of the runtime of this movie. It's just him staring and watching and following him. And it's just like, dude, like, Jesus Christ. Like, I, I just couldn't get over that. Like, that is literally the plot of this movie. It's like, this is not just like a memory or like um, a fantasy sequence or a dream that he's having. No, he's literally following this family he's around, obsessing yeah. over this young boy. Everything you've said so far makes it seem like the plot is perfectly fine, but I'm an evil robot. And that's creepy to me. So... <sighs> I, did, I wasn't sure I was going to get into this. I'm going to say something that's going to really bring down the mood of this podcast. I'm really sorry to do this. By the way, trigger warning for sexual abuse coming up. If that's not your bag, you can totally skip over this. So the thing about it, Dave, is, is that I, as a young boy, was molested. And so when I see depiction of this, like I have this, this hair trigger reaction of disgust. Because I understand what this type of infatuation leads to. 
and it's not fun and it's not fair for that young person in that situation. This is also, by the way, why it's such a strong reaction against Sweet Sweet Backs, where the you basically have a father who pushes his son to have non-consensual sex on camera. Like, I have no idea what's going on in 1971, where two movies that we have watched basically have me so fuming mad <laughs> over a scene, and in this case, scenes of this going on. So I understand, I think, intellectually what this movie is trying to argue but i call bullshit on it i think that this is just a excuse to be able to ogle at young men without their consent and i truly feel that that is what this is and we'll get into like the history of the making of this movie here in a moment that makes me even madder at this movie because you can try and argue that this is this artistic expression again of aesthetic beauty and like being in this beautiful location and of course being swept up in the beauty of people that are around you no this is a this is a guy who's obsessing over a teenage boy and if he could he would have sexual relationship with him against this guy's will and i hate this movie for that and I mean that. I hate this movie quite a bit. So <laughs> you might have to talk me off of a ledge here, Dave, because I'm going to go off. I hate this movie. Yeah, I think, uh, no, I, I mean, if the ledge is you doing something violent uh, to your computer, then we'll talk you off of it. But you're allowed to hate this movie because this movie is not that redeemable. The only thing maybe is the cinematography is beautiful and the rest of it yeah. can go fuck itself. I think what's interesting doing a little background research is this author actually is this guy yes, and found this actually happened. It wasn't even 15 years old. It was a 10-year-old boy. Year old boy. So I think 15 boy. is yeah. just because they wouldn't allow a big name Italian director to cast a 10-year-old boy at this time. But I think mm -hmm. the way he's dressed, he's supposed to be 10. We're not in the realm of like a borderline like a statement on homosexuality or anything we're talking pedophile we're right. talking about uh predator it, the worst part is the victim blaming thing where the boy is flirting with the guy that's the part that made me the most upset i, I it was so confusing that he would be so creepy and come, apparently coming to light with his own innermost locked away perversion but then every time you you know you have the shot of uh tetsu or tetsu or whatever He's like smiling at him and winking at him. That's mm -hmm. fucked up, dude. That's some like, this, I, I was yeah, just. This is like, this is like fantasy, like slash fiction that you're writing about your own life. It's like, oh, this vacation I went. But what if the boy was like into it and yeah. when I was looking at him and following him around Venice and stuff like that? Like, that's what gets like pretty insidious pretty quickly about this story. And it made me want to punch the screen while I was watching this <laughs> yeah. entire thing. I think the ideas that they're bringing up here would actually be better served if it was either a, a man of his own age um, or at, at the very least, if you're going to go like the huge age difference here, have it be like, it's a 25 year old guy. And again, the, the, the guy, the composer coming into Venice, the same age as he is right now, you can still have that conversation about aesthetic beauty, about not actually ever talking to this person, this idealized version of, the other without wrapping up in the pedophilia thing that this movie cannot escape. The fact that this gets adapted so much is the other thing that like breaks my brain. We'll get to that at the end, but like, I don't, I don't get it. I just straight up don't get it. What is it about this story that has like, this is makes me honestly want to put on a tinfoil hat and get in bed with Q because 
it's like, yeah, I guess all of Hollywood is filled with pedophiles because why mm. else would you remake this movie every like five years? Because well, apparently it does. That's come to light. So that, I mean, yeah. that's its own podcast, but uh, that is now a fact. That is not just a conjecture. Um, mm. uh, but one of the things that I've uh, noticed just on the brief history is the uh, defense of this on an intellectual scale is yes. so uh, apologetic. You know, it's trying so hard to reach some. So I saw one where it was like, well, the whole point is that the appearance of cholera is supposed to uh, foreshadow that this is a disease and that he's, you know, it's a reflection of him mm. killing himself. I'm like, no, it's, I mean, it, you know, it happens at the same time, but he's still writing a book about stalking a 10 year old boy in the middle of a pandemic. Um, yeah. And yeah, dying. Apparently, is, this is very. We keep coming to these like pandemic movies without actually even meaning to in this case. To, yeah. But yeah, like I'm, I'm sure that Thomas Mann, who wrote the book, the original book, was using cholera or I, I don't know if it's actually cholera in the book, but it's the same thing. The disease yeah. is going yeah. around. Yeah. It, it, yes. Using this metaphorically to, again, discuss different things. Again, I don't think that escapes the reality that this guy is still lusting after a boy. With, yeah, with the, or without the collar, that is still a thing that is happening in this book. And that's the thing. Like, even the anecdote, his wife talked about how this actually happened when they were together on this trip and she's like, in Venice. It's like a fun little story she's yeah. telling, which I it's like, what are you Oh, he didn't doing? follow him. He didn't follow him. But, you know, he kept talking about how beautiful this boy is. And you're like, well, uh, then he wrote a book Maybe. about following him. So, yeah. you know, there's questions. Okay. Uh, well, let's do this then. Let's go through some it's of this 10. backstory and then we can delve into this a little bit more. So, Death in Venice was released on March 1st, 1971 in London. I can sense the bile building inside of you. Here's where my anger starts building, Dave. <laughs> it's rated 7.4 on IMDb. Uh, there's no available rating on Metacritic, but on Rotten Tomatoes, 71% from 24 critics. And then from 5,000 plus users, it is 81%. Well, so this is a beloved film, apparently, from uh, 5,000 users. Amongst amongst yeah. active pedophiles, maybe. <laughs> okay. Uh, maybe. <laughs> uh, it, is, it is available on DVD and Blu-ray. It can also be rented or purchased from iTunes. And it is also available to rent via Google Play and YouTube. Uh, I don't have much information as far as what it made. I do know that its budget was $2 million. But that's about as much as I know. Its plot description is, while recovering in Venice, sickly composer Gustav von Aschenbach becomes dangerously fixated with teenager Tadzio. Interesting way that they frame that. Dangerously <laughs> fixated. <laughs> uh, this stars Dirk Bogard as Gustav von Aschenbach, Mark Burns as Alfred, and Bjorn Adresen as Tadzio. Anything you want to say about those actors? Actually, can you fill me in with Dirk? Let's have this be the positive part of this podcast. Tell me about Dirk Bogard. Well, okay. Positive because he's really cool and super downer because of World War II. But mm. uh, Dirk was a knight. Dirk was gay. And Dirk is just a really cool guy. So... I should point out that a lot of the people involved in this movie, both behind the scenes and in front of the camera, are also gay. And I only bring this up, too, because uh, what I mean by bringing that up is that, as people may or may not realize anymore, uh, homosexuality was actually a crime still in mm. this era, even leading into the 70s. You could potentially, in many countries, go to jail or, as we saw with Alan Turing, whatever, get chemically... Why would you chemically castrate somebody who is not intending to... Rep like, it's just... The fucking madness of society. Because they're deviants, Dave. Gross. Devils. Devils. And so he apparently was uh, closeted his whole life 
he did live with a man his entire life, but he always said it was platonic. And it is explained that this may be why he could never break into Hollywood because he would never take mm. a trophy wife. What's interesting about him is he fought during the Second World War after studying uh, theater, but in 39, the war happens. And he's very intelligent. He ended up on these special assignments. He's an intelligence officer. And he's one of the first uh, intelligence officers to enter one of the liberated concentration camps. And so, I won't get into the description, but he has these anecdotes that he talked about much later in life because he never wanted to talk about them. And I had to stop reading them. It's, I mean, it's like every tale you read about concentration camps, but his stuff is personal experience and it's it's not an upper. <laughs> It's not, but he is a fascinating guy. So, when he comes back and starts acting, he signs a contract with somebody called Rank and they create a heartthrob actor out of him. So, okay. in the 50s, he's doing all these like, I'm a whatever, right? It's like soldier back from the a war. Viral young man. Right. Yeah. But what's really interesting is by the end of the 50s, he breaks the contract because Rank is the one that has a morality clause. And so, he's not allowed to do anything other than be this Adonis. And it's after the 60s that he gets involved with only movies of this nature. Everything he does seems to be about liberating sexual freedoms, uh, talking about uh, human rights conditions all around the world. All of his projects are these very, I mean, a little bit macabre, but like hard-hitting social things. And a lot of his work is credited at influencing um, the end of the illegality of sexual politics. Uh, so, his movies and his uh, humanitarian work are often cited as bringing the end of some of these weird moral clauses in British culture at the time. Uh, and I think he was knighted for this reason. Why doesn't someone make a movie out of his life? He's a very interesting guy. He's accomplished. It's like, uh, who did we do? Oh, Charlton Heston had like top secret access to the right, CIA, right. right? He's like one of these guys. Well, He's, I mean, he did find an ape planet. <laughs> if you find so. a planet of the apes, you kind of know, you need to know stuff. Um, but I, I just, uh, reading more, I mean, it, he's just a very interesting, interesting huh. person. Um, and I wish I known more. But again, he didn't make it in North America. And the presumption is that right. by the 1670s, he refused to pretend that he was straight. He refused to admit that he was gay, he was stuck in this little box. But he had a partner for 40 plus years and they mm. lived together, uh, which is really sweet and beautiful in its own right. Uh, and he kind of just became a civil rights guy uh, under the, in a very British way. Very understated, but very powerful. Yeah. Um, all I don't know actually much about Mark Burns, who is Alfred, like in the two scenes I think that he's in of them arguing about like- What an um, asshole. I hated that character. <laughs> it didn't make any sense. Okay, we'll, we'll get into it later. Which actually is not in the book apparently. That was added in for the film to have some sort of discussion against like, again- Rationalism Your versus... artistic output being something to do with your morality as yeah, well. Yeah. They're trying to conflate those two ideas together. Uh, Bjorn Dresen uh, is Swedish. So he had to be dubbed into Polish for this movie. So that's not his actual voice you hear on screen. He basically stays in Sweden after this movie and does a bunch of stuff. Western audiences, I'm going to go on a limb and say the thing you're probably going to know him from is like the one Western film I know that he was in was Midsummer from a couple of years ago. He's oh. part of the cult that, that they come to in, in that movie. This was written by Lucino Visconti and Nicola Badalucco, uh, adapted from the book Death in Venice by Thomas Mann, directed by Lucino Visconti. I'm going to start with Thomas Mann. So he was German, born in 1875 and lived until 1955, but his main works were in the first half of the 1900s. He won the Nobel Prize for Literature in 1929, primarily for this epic novel called Buddenbrooks, 
uh, and his other popular work, The Magic Mountain. Uh, I have not read either. So I, I apologize. Uh, he was most probably gay. I'm going to go with the limb and say he was 100% gay. Uh, but he married a woman because in his diaries, there are literally like countless confessions and conversations he wrote about struggling with his sexuality. So in the late 1800s and early 1900s, there are, of course, these bunch of writers and philosophers and other figures that were just influencing each other. If you ever explore that time, it's like everyone was feeding off of each other as far as like ideas and stuff. But uh, man definitely was inspired by many of the Russian greats, but also with Nietzsche and Freud. Those are his other two like huge inspirations. So the year is 1911. Man and his wife Katya go on vacation to Venice, staying at the Grand Hotel de Bon. Uh, which is ex actually the exact hotel that is in this movie. And in the dining room one day, there's this Polish family nearby. The girls are dressed rather stiffly, but their brother is this beautiful young boy, in quotes. His wife even admits that the boy was attractive. Her exact words, attractive. Uh, man watched him on the beach and was completely fascinated by him. And, and this boy was, I'm going to butcher this name, but Baron Vladislaw Moez, uh, born of nobility in Poland, but he was 10 years old. He was 10 years old. It's a good pause. That's a correct pause, pause, yeah. So 1912, then, is the year when this, Der Toad in Venedig, or Death in Venice, is published. Uh, so it is, is essentially the same story as this movie. The only thing that I'll mention is that there's this inciting incident in the book of a red-haired foreigner, is what they say, a red-haired foreigner that scares Gustav into going onto his trip in the first place. And then the gondolier that we kind of see at the beginning of this movie, and then a, uh, a the singer that they have, that extended sequence of the singer, both have red hair in the book. So there's kind of like this ongoing symbolism of like a devil kind of following him around. What should also be stated is that the novel is full of allusions to Greek works. So, in fact, a lot of it is concerned with this idea from Plato concerning the connection of erotic love and philosophical wisdom. So, conflating those two, like erotic love is the very same thing as philosophical wisdom because you're, you know, expressing yourself and exploding with knowledge. You can tell, like, most of uh, Western thought was made from the male perspective. So, that's coupled with the Nietzschean exploration of the god Apollo the god of restraint, and the god Dionysus, the god of excess and passion. So I just want to let me know that there's apparently extensive philosophical passages rather than straight plot-driven narrative in the book that I think is attempted to be done with, again, that Alfred character. I don't know if it translates all that well. But you are the resident philosopher, Dave. Maybe you can <laughs> jump in and give me your two thoughts on the Greek philosophers. Well, I mean, I don't know. We don't need, I have a surface knowledge of everything in life. Yeah. I will say it is interesting at the end of the 19th century, going into the 20th century, we're seeing the end of, uh, you know, first rationalist empiricist and then the romantic era. And Nietzsche in particular kind of has this really interesting position where, I mean, he's insane. He's got syphilis, he's got a brain tumor. Uh, he writes in aphorisms. Anybody that quotes Nietzsche, as having a singular system of philosophy is incorrect <laughs> because uh, he's kind of all over the place. Um, he he if, uh, kind of like you brought up, he writes from passion and he, he writes in response to uh, this dialectic that's happening right now, this dialogue, sorry. One thing to know what you said earlier, this breeding ground of philosophy, it is hard for us to understand that 
the literate were still a handful of things, uh, people right. in the aristocracy. Yeah. Books were in print for like 200 copies. So, if Kant wrote a book and one went to Hume, it's like that's like a one-to-one relationship. It's not at a bookstore. That's like that's like 10% of your sales. Right yeah, there. exactly. <laughs> I don't even know if they were selling them, right? I think they may have just been passing them to each other. That, right. that part I'm not uh, too familiar with. So, there's not an educated public as there is now. So, the discourse is very, very uh, limited and very narrow. You can't expect the rabble to have actual <laughs> conversations, though, with people, Dave. I agree. It should never have changed. <laughs> so, and this is, you know, it's uh, we're seeing civil re- uh, revolutions. We're seeing a pushback against this old form. So, this guy's writing in this time, and uh, I don't know. I've, I've seen a little bit of this too. That the book's really about. Uh, well, I mean, you brought up the Platonic idea of the form or true beauty or the true. Uh, True being in and of itself versus yeah. being as we experience it. That stuff has always struck me as bullshit. Yeah. So I hate all I, of that stuff. I, I, <laughs> so as the, as the English major, when I went to school, like they always bring this up in like your history of thought, but also like criticism studies and stuff like that. They always start with like the poetics and, and all that kind of stuff. I always felt like I was just dumb because I just never bought any of that kind of stuff. And so I always kind of just like, well, I guess they want me to like talk about in like the, the, the platonic view of this, this work is this thing. And the Freud view of this work would be this one thing. I, I, I never found much use. It's fine, I guess, doing the research and find out what those people thought. Uh, I also think it's valuable to be like, I don't think that they're right. <laughs> and this is why I don't think that they're right. So I only have that surface level understanding of most of that, that stuff too. Although I have read <laughs> a bunch of that stuff. Uh, of course, translated into English, my uh, ancient Greek is not as uh, well-tuned as it once was. This is why we struggle with the runes. That's right. right. We did struggle with those runes <laughs> yeah. for quite a long time. Um, okay, so just to finish this off here then, Lucino Visconti was this renowned film director. He'd made a bunch of films by the year 1971. We mentioned already the most famous being The Leopard. But lots of his films are just really highly regarded. This film, in fact, is very highly regarded. Uh, It won the 25th anniversary prize at the Cannes Film Festival in 1971 uh, because they couldn't break a tie between this film and another film that I had actually never heard of before. But they gave the other movie the Palm Door, like the top prize. And then this one was just literally created this 25th anniversary prize just to give this movie. So there's like these double winners, basically, in the year 1971. Uh, Nicola Badalucco, just as a footnote, was kind of just starting his writing career uh, as a 40-year-old man. So he helped write the previous Visconti film called The Damned, uh, which is his first writing credit. And he continued to work until 1992 and passed away in 2015. Uh, Visconti himself was openly bisexual and was the longtime partner of actor Helmut Berger. Yeah, in adapting man's work, he changed the main character of Gustav from a writer to a composer because he felt that it would be more visually interesting, which to be honest, I think that's actually true. Um, but also because man based the description of Gustav after Gustav Mahler, the composer of the early 1900s, Visconti wanted to use Mahler's music as the underscore, which he does. So if I was to give one a piece of like positive feedback to this movie, the music is great. Visconti would make three more films, all highly regarded and would pass away in 1976. Just a quick note, he was a noble, so there's irony. He was born uh, yeah. as a duke. I can't remember. Oh, really? And he- uh, Duke of what? <laughs> oh, no, a count. Sorry, a count. Oh. He was a count. Oh, and, like Chocula. 
And uh, after the, uh, you know, all of the tumultuous, uh, you know, 10s, 20s, and 30s, uh, during the war, he declared himself a communist, which I think is mm. sort of ironic. And then uh, he's with Fellini, starting off the neorealism movement in Italy. And what's interesting is this is the beginning of one of his breaks where he decides, I'm just going to do these big, epic, yeah. uh, gorgeous fantasy films. But, you know, on the count... Uh, from my positive note, from again a cinematography standpoint, this is a, the lighting. Yeah, the, uh, it's good. It's just it's incredibly beautiful. beautiful shots. Not a thing to watch. <laughs> I have to be careful how we phrase this. Don't watch this movie, people. Mm-hmm. You're listening to this, or or do I? Well, I actually like- have to say, I have to say, um, here's the, here's some of the notes that I uh, wrote down. <laughs> Are they all caps? Is everything in all caps? Let me tell you this. <laughs> There is one that is in all caps, which is literally, what are you doing? Three exclamation points after he starts petting Tazio's hair. Ugh. I'm just like, what the fuck? <laughs> um, so at the beginning of this movie, Alfred and him are in this room Alfred. and they're watching an hourglass. And, and, and Alfred very astutely says, the sand only finds out that it's in an hourglass at the end. Sounds very like uh, deep, profound. Yeah. I only found out that it was the end of the movie um, at the end, and I couldn't be happier. I don't know where you want to start. I like. I get again. I, I maybe I'm giving it even more credit than what it's due. I feel like it is trying to set up this conversation with Alfred and Gustav as like the setup to this movie, and we're supposed to kind of be feeling his struggle at being like this somewhat failed composer who gets booed out of his last production that he does because he's not being true to himself i guess is what i read into that scene where he's trying to use other beautiful things inside this work without actually it having come from him and so you see that degradation of his psyche as he goes to the barber gets his like dye job and painted white face he looks super garish because he's trying to look so young I don't know. Does any of that track for you? Like, I don't know. Did you glom onto anything else in this movie or like what, at, at the very least of what it was trying to attempt to do? In the, in the dialogue with Alfred, I wrote that it's this pretentious attempt to philosoph- uh, philosophize this. So they're trying to embody you know, a rationalist standpoint. So Gustav is like, it's all about intent and form and uh, the beauty of the music is in its structure and alfred's like no you have to go and chase after young boys in venice to be a true artist and uh but it doesn't play very well a because the the uh, cuts to those nuances uh, sorry the cuts to those interchanges are very weird it's hard to even understand where they fall into place and b i just i hate movies that try to do this that try to make themselves more intelligent Almost to justify what you're watching on screen, hmm. and I wonder. Well, you can, you can, but but just, just to stay on that point for a second, movies can be intellectual. Though you're not arguing yeah, the same that movies can't be intellectual. No, uh, yes, and I I mean more in the sense that uh, it felt like dialogue was inserted to justify hmm. how, or to explain to the viewer what they're supposed to be watching, instead of letting a film demonstrate it itself. I think it had full awareness that it was going to be such a controversial and problematic story that it created this character, Alfred, just so that it would break it up a little bit. So you aren't just watching a fucking weird stalker horror film where uh, an old man is going to essentially abduct a young boy. 
it's trying to interject this idea that this is actually a metaphor to the condition of modern man and how we are struggling to express it's, it's bullshit. And I, I was offended by it. Every time they would do a cutaway, it would be jarring because I'd be like, I, I don't want you to justify that I am spending time watching this man grow more and more disgusting. And uh, like some of the, I mean, he's a good actor, I suppose, but yeah. like he, how he tricks himself to stay, you know, sending the bags to the wrong thing and sitting in the, in the train station, like smiling at himself, like some fucking, yeah, oh, like, oh, I, like, I can use this as an excuse to stick around. To go I back. mean, oh, awful. I know this is the risk of being like, you know, if I was the writer, this is how I'd make this movie. And I know that like, that's not great criticism at the same time. I mean, this is a problem in the source material, so I can't really fault it because it's literally just following the source material. I feel that if you're going to try and make this bold claim that he's becoming infatuated and you want to make even like the apologists are saying that, you know, well, he dies at the end. So like his comeuppance is there. I for me, I need it to be more explicit than that. I need him to feel the wrath of that um, obsession going getting out of hand uh, where whether it's by Tadzio's hand or by something else, that there's some uh, closure. What is it? closure to that instead of him like just kind of collapsing on in the chair at the, at the very end. What this reminds me of a lot, are you familiar with parasocial relationships at all? Like that term? No. Technically, that's how you'd have to describe all my relationships. This has really come to play here in our modern age because of YouTube and podcasting. Parasocial relationships are essentially relationships you're having alone. So it's like with an actor, a YouTuber, a podcaster, where you know a lot about them. They do not know who you are at all. So you have invited them into your home. We watch them constantly. Maybe follow up in the news about what's going on in their life. So this, the, the relationship there is very one-sided. But what can happen to the detriment of people is that you start to frame this narrative like, oh, they're friends with me. They're with me all the time. They know who I am. They're, they're, they'd be best friends with me if they knew who I am. And this is how you get like a lot of stalkers and that sort of thing. And you have to break away from that because the, the, the worst case of this is being like, well, I have been watching you for X amount of years. You owe me X, Y, and Z. So it can turn very violent and very scary very quickly. Uh, beauty vloggers actually get this a lot. A, because they're women on the internet, but B, because again, they're personable, they're uh, showing you information, and they do come across as like, they're your best friend. This is basically that in movie form, where like, Gustav has formed this entire story, it seemingly, about like, oh, maybe he is inviting me, oh, his smile means this, oh, I'm going to follow him around, I'm going to touch his hair, and it's, uh, yeah, for me, it just never felt like he came to a really realization, or he was held accountable for crossing the line. I guess that's kind of what I was hoping that this, I, I, there was a part of me was like, if this movie actually gets to that place, I might turn my opinion around, <laughs> but then it never does. And I was like, ah, oh, I feel like I just wasted two hours of my time watching this. I mean, I'll say this about uh, non North American filmmaking, particularly this era. Like we are a little bit biased in that North American cinema historically or at least within the code eras, always want to tell a story in a closed loop because, you know, there's yes. a, uh, I always call it puritanical, but a strong Christian morality that's whitewashed, for lack of a better term, you know, mass media. Uh, so 
when I watch Asian and European cinema, they often don't live under that same blanket. Uh, and so they're willing to challenge these norms. Uh, so you can create a movie like this in Europe and you cannot create a movie like this in America. You just, even now, you would have a lot of trouble even getting this green lit somewhere, even by this culture of uh, pedophiles that rule Hollywood. They would never want to out themselves by allowing this picture mm. to be seen. So there is uh, something, I don't want to say important, but yeah, important about allowing these uh, dark parts of humanity to be seen. So like I didn't want to talk about with Dirk, when we read about the crimes against humanity in any of its form, it's it's something that actually people should read. You should read what happened to people in these gulags and in concentration mm. camps. You shouldn't in the sense that I don't want my son, Emerson, to have to see that. But at the same time, how can you learn the lesson without, without seeing, seeing that, the yeah. devil, right? Um, so I too, because I'm North American, I wanted a couple come up and I wanted someone to punch him in his fucking face. You know, I wanted him to suffer. Um, the implication is that he's suffering in his passion, but uh, you know, like little turn, a uh, little turns, like showing Tatsio as being this sort of victim blame thing, like uh, smiling at him and like flirting with him. If they had been able to separate that from reality, if, if we were supposed to know that that's supposed to be in Gustav's head, you know, maybe this film can shape the conversation a little differently. But there's something complicit about the way they portray him. So then yeah, you're along that, this ride with him. It's weird. I think man. that is where my revulsion is coming in, is that I agree with you in the abstract that sometimes we need to use art and we need to use film as a way to show awful things about awful people. But I never feel like this movie is chastising Gustav for his actions. No. If anything, they're they're supporting it and that's where it gets to be like i'm not on board with this at all in any shape or form absolutely we should be able to show uh off of bad and evil people but i don't want the film to be like aren't they cool or aren't they awesome or are aren't shouldn't we feel bad for them instead of like what they're actually doing to other people and I say that and everything, and then there's still the people who like fall in love with serial killers and send them letters in jail. So I don't know. Maybe maybe it's a lost cause. Well, you know the other thing I think to keep in mind, although the book was written, I, I don't know. I mean, the late 19th century is a much more, as much as we like to uh, catastrophize how we live today, the previous generations lived a much more complex and uh, tumultuous Well, yeah, life. I guess. So if you're coming out of several wars- your idea yes. of what humanity is is much bleaker than ours. But also, like we also should point out, not necessarily in 1911, uh, but like really our idea of what childhood is, yeah, is really birthed out of the Victorian era. Uh, so at the end of the Victorian era, like our whole idea of like what a child is and like childhood is something we hold much more dear than what they would have in 1850. Yes. Because, you know, you're three years old, you have small hands, you're going to go and fetch some coal out of the coal mine because yeah. you're the only person who can reach it. And, you know, you're you're going to go to work. By the end of the 1800s into the 1900s, we're getting into things like children's literature for the first time. There actually is like uh, mandatory schooling and stuff like that. So that idea of like being a child and allowing to be a child was still relatively new in 1911 when this book was published. Yeah, the, the lines keep, blurring and I, and this is one of the dangerous things like for example when people argue between pedophiles and statutory you know all these things become a, a pit that nobody wants to talk about 
uh, because of this assumption that we have a story that this number means that you are not able to make decisions for yourself, therefore someone's taking advantage of you. This age is that we trust that you can hang out with your peers, but someone who's 20 years older than you is taking advantage. And, you know, like all that stuff is very weird. Uh, so we, we shouldn't talk about it. But it is well, I guess I guess what I, what I was just going to, what I guess I was trying to drive at here is that I can maybe slightly give credence to the novel for not having that conversation. But by 50 years later in 1971, absolutely, this is not a conversation like, well, what is childhood really? Well, you know, I, again, now I'm starting to sound like an apologist, but I will say just because we brought up World War II, another thing that we've separated from is that generation that directly experienced the concentration camps. Like this guy that directed it, uh, what's his name again? Luciano? Visconti. Visconti. This guy was born in like 1906. So as he's going through his formative years, I mean, he's seen two world wars. He's seen incredibly brutal public crimes against humanity. He's seen the absolute degradation, not only of uh, how we treat each other, but huge philosophical and scientific systems of knowledge have been uprooted. And in Europe in particular, you see that turn into things like existentialism and all these different um, philosophical schools where they're actually questioning these very things. Like, what is it? That makes something moral. Why am I not allowed to do this? You know, if five years ago I watched my friend like rape and pillage, but now they're considered heroes because we won the war, then what is morality? You know, and so the fact that this is written and directed by somebody that lived through that is a bit telling because it, it's not that he did a good thing, but I can see where portraying it the way he did, he could convince himself that he was asking these questions. And uh, an older film review board at Cannes might think, you know what, this is what we, the world needs. We need to remember that we're monsters. Um, and we look well, at it, it's again, like, it's again, disgusting. We, as we, yeah, as, as we keep saying, like, this is middle of Vietnam War, so they yeah. might be, considering this, we're in the middle of a third one <laughs> that we're it's, about to get into. Like, And we're seeing that in 1971 in general so far. And we've only watched five films, but all of them have this blurry moral compass. There's too many things happening uh, around the world for there to be a singular right and wrong. That being said, uh, I am revulsed by this movie. <laughs> I'm not challenged by it. I don't want to ask that question. I think that if you're going to ask those questions, there are better ways to do it. We don't need to involve I guess, yeah, children. I, I yeah. think what makes me the most angry is that what this movie feels like it's doing is conflating homosexuality with pedophilia. Yes. And boy, has the LGBTQ community tried so hard to fight against that stigma. Like, this feels like such a step backwards. Yes, released 50 years ago. But for people who were gay themselves or bisexual themselves, who were f fighting for that inclusion of of uh, that type of representation, it feels like such a regressive way to take a look at that. Uh, I have no problem with Gustav being gay. I have a problem with him, you know, stalking a child. I, and that's a great point. I think, and and as we've brought up, uh, it looks like so many people involved in this were not only gay, but probably publicly closeted because of the stigma yes. that they're living in. So if they're looking to challenge that subversively, because you can't do it openly, uh, as you brought up, not that we want to rewrite history, but why can't we cast a 20-year-old or an 18-year-old uh, Tatsio where it's not so visibly offensive, <laughs> yeah. where, where you don't have to conflate those two things because they're feeding into the stereotype 
that there is something monstrous and perversive and disgusting about just being in love with whoever you want to be. Uh, the way that uh, Gustav becomes so sick and clown-like and, and just grotesque at the end, it is making a moral statement that is counter to however it seems like they want to live. I, yeah. I don't understand how you can marry those two things together. So, you know, I gave uh, Dirk a lot of props for seemingly wanting to challenge this norm throughout the second half of his acting career and his, uh, you know, work after being an actor. But this is a weird one because unlike all the other titles, this one does mix something that we still consider to be very, very evil, uh, which is yeah. the use of children in this. Um, and we got offended with that in Sweetback. I, I don't understand the value of it other than shock value. And maybe there's a cultural thing where you have to hit someone hard enough in the face for them to ask these questions, but does it do more damage than good? I, I, I think so. I don't, uh, for me, I didn't get a feeling like this was talking about homosexuality, but we do live in a more woke time. If I was, you know, 30 years old in 1971. I thought you were. I think this could be very biased for me, right? Uh, you could look at this and say, all gay men must love gay boys or something like you, you could easily make that and, um, and then, you know, just become a dick, right? So you're going to make your own movie called Death in Wokeness. <laughs> uh, I think there. it is, <sighs> I think it is Alfred who says this, but there's kind of this closing quote that says wisdom, truth, human dignity, all finished. And I think that's like right after the uh, final musical performance that there is. What do you have to say about that? Is, 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 do you think that his, I guess what I really am trying to ask about this, I think what the movie is trying to posit here is that Gustav's failure as a composer to not use wisdom, what does it say? Wisdom, truth, and human dignity is also a moral failing. So just to talk about that on the intellectual philosophical level, do you agree with that? Uh, wait, say it again. I mean, it's very confusing. Wisdom, yeah. truth, human dignity. All finished. Wisdom, truth, truth human dignity. It, it's just funny to group them. I mean, yeah, I think three that if, weird things yeah, to put together. Yeah. If, if one were to try an academic philosophical discourse, you would have to separate all three and see if they even relate to each other. But just on the basis of wisdom, truth, and human dignity, in relation to his moral failings. I mean, I don't know. I'm trying not to remember this movie, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> if anything, there is a twist about passion for passion's sake versus rationality for rationality's sake, and where do we land in the middle? So, Gustav for sure in those arguments is yelling that you have to be strict, formed, and that there's a perfect way to do something. And Alfred seems to be on the opposite side, this romantic ideal that there's no such thing as uh, perfection. There's no such thing as yeah. rationality, that everything comes from being free with yourself. And then when Gustav finally decides he'll try it out, it turns out that he's a monster and he dies. So on that, on that level, there is a core storyline that is interesting. Again, does it need to involve a 10-year-old boy? Absolutely not. Uh, it could be any vice, honestly. And we see that. I mean, that's a. I think that's a classic tale, right? Uh, mm -hmm. A vice gone too far. But on a philosophical term, it becomes much more complex, especially in contemporary philosophy, where it's mostly just uh, semantics. Everybody arguing about what do you mean when you say wisdom? 
if we break down the Latin uh, uh, words, like what does where does that come from? And, you know, it's, it's all bullshit. So I don't know if we can. I, I kind of say that pocket, th- right? those are the types of conversations I hate being a part of because you end up never actually talking about the idea. Exactly. You only just talk about like the semantics of the words you chose to use. You just want yourself to feel smart by being around other people that say the same things as you and uh, confirmation bias. So I don't know. I don't want to give this movie any more credit than it deserves. I think that like most movies, there are universal questions that underpin why we even write stories. So if very vaguely we want to ask, should we live only with our passions? I mean, this is pre-Socratic stuff, right? Like with, uh, what do you call them? I don't remember the names, but the ones that want to have sex and drink uh, wine all the time versus uh, uh, let's say the Stoics who believe giving into any of that was a failure and that living by a code, irregardless of how much you suffer for it, was the better way to live. I mean, the, these are questions that we've been asking since the beginning of asking questions. They drive all plots. That does it need to take a form of an old man stalking a boy? Absolutely not. Uh, it, you can have much more powerful ways of expressing this uh, message. And so if you want to reduce any film, it could be, fuck, it could be a, it could be an Adam, it can be an Adam Sandler film. There will be a philosophical core that drives Adam Sandler to write Mr. Deeds, you know, because you don't yeah. just come up with shit. There's a, some tension in his life that he has to have, you know, John Turturro with a dead foot or something like that. That stuff's got to come from somewhere, but it's giving this movie too much credit. I, I, um, I think that's what critics, uh, for whatever reason, critics really want to do this. I, when we look at it online, the people that are supporting this movie really want to reduce this into a philosophical text. And I, do, I don't know why. Maybe they are secretly enjoying okay. the problems right. of this film. <laughs> now, 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 now you go. <laughs> We're going to get sued today if we can't make wild I'd, bases. I'd be willing to uh, stand up on a soapbox for this. It's weird to support this movie, Kyle. It is. I, I agree. I, I, I think the uh, as far as I will go is what you kind of mentioned is I think there is a kernel here that could be extrapolated into an interesting exploration of, yes, like art, expression, beauty, morality, etc. I do not feel this movie does it. In any way. We're done here. But the the machine has told us that we do have to wrap this up. So Dave, (laughs) I'm going to ask the two common questions we ask here. Do you think this holds up and is it still culturally relevant? Uh, No and no. With the only thing like we brought up, you brought up the score and I brought up the cinematography. Being able to light things, there is masterful work in that. And the rest of this movie can go fuck itself. So um, no and no. So I would also be a double no. But let me tell you this. <sighs> okay. So this is, uh, there, there's, a, uh, there's an interview that they had, they, I think it was um, not Vanity Fair, but somewhere else, had with Bjorn Adresen about a decade ago. So he says, as preparation for the role of Tazio, apparently Lucino Visconti took Bjorn to gay clubs in order to experience mannerisms and reactions from gay men since he was about to play the object of desire of another man. Of his experience, Bjorn said, I was just 16 and Visconti and the team took me to a gay nightclub. Almost all of the crew were gay. The waiters at the club made me feel very uncomfortable. They looked at me uncompromisingly as if I was a nice meaty dish. I knew I couldn't react. It would have been social suicide, but it was the first of many encounters. 
Adult love for adolescence is something that I am against in principle. Emotionally, perhaps, and intellectually, I'm disturbed by it because I have some insight into what this kind of love is about. So that is what he has stated. He has very much distanced himself from this movie. Of course. Uh, uh, of course, that's why I'm even more interested in watching this documentary that's coming out because I really want to see uh, what else he has to say. But you can understand that, right? Like, here's a guy, here's a kid breaking into the movie industry, like famous director, very well-renowned, and is taken into this situation where, like, I feel very uncomfortable and I can't say anything because, again, I am a 15, 16-year-old boy thinking of being brought over to the adults table. I mean, like, ah, uh, nope, this is, this is not, because basically he's the only person of this entire crew that isn't gay. This makes it feel even more predatory. This is where oh, it gets yeah. me even angry about this. Like the whole making of this movie feels like it's out of line. Uh, just two thoughts. One to color Luciano Visconti one, like even worse. I mean, not worse, but just to give you a little extra, a little bit of uh, pepper on mm -hmm. this. Apparently, the white makeup on Dirk's face wouldn't work. Oh, and yes. Then, I read about this. Yeah. And then finally, they brought something. And as soon as they put it on, it would stay on his face. But he said it started burning. And Luciano Visconti knew that this was a substance that was not meant to be used on the face or the skin or the eyes. And he's like, you know what? Fuck it. Let's just do it anyways because it's for the art. What yeah. a fucking asshole. Yeah, I hate and, that. Um, the other thing that's interesting, just on a philosophical note, is I hate, and this is why semantics exist. Love is such a weird term. And I think, uh, you know, Bjorn is trying to uh, elucidate, I don't know, just explain yeah. this a little bit. How I love my son is different than how I love my wife, is different yeah. than how I would be in love with my friends, because that word is too wide, right? And um, what we're looking here, this idea of perversion is entirely not just sex, it's like something else. Yeah, it's, it's, it's predatory and it's not love. It's... Uh, it's violence, really, is what it is. It is, yeah. And it's, uh, it's like, it's what, yeah, it's it's power over yeah. something else. Like, it's it gets really weird and Very psychosexual. So, uh, um, don't but use again, don't as use far as, yeah, uh, I'm going to go love myself here in a moment, Dave. Um, Everybody's picturing which love you're talking about now. Yep. So, <laughs> so, I say that I don't think this holds up, but let me read you this. So, there's this movie in 1971. The story is adapted into an opera in 1973 it's dramatized for bbc radio 3 in 1997 it's adapted as a ballet in 2003 and it's made into a play in the year 2013 wow this keeps getting made into a story and i'm losing my mind over <laughs> here because i don't get it i feel like i'm just like on, on the complete outskirts this is probably what it must feel to people who are not into the Marvel movies and they're just like, why do they keep making the same movie all the time? And I'm just over there like, ooh, give it to me. Nom, 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 nom. I love my Marvel stuff. This is like a story that I don't get. Why is this like the new Peter Pan that you have to remake this every five years? I don't get it. You know what though? I mean, not not about this uh, this story, but when, what did we get? Oh, we uh, I got Lewis Carroll's actual book, Alice in Wonderland. Oh, yeah. I think it's unreadable. It's garbage. Uh, you have to kind of know what's going on in like the time matter. period. But yeah, it doesn't and, matter. Uh, <laughs> and there's another one. We, I got a classic for Emerson, you know, a couple of years ago. And it's not for children. You know, a lot of these ideas have been Disney-fied for us. Sure. I don't mean this again as an excuse for this story having so many legs. Maybe it's public domain stuff. I don't know. Maybe, uh, yeah. I, I still think, and I know you say we'll get sued. I think it's a reflection of the creator's. Honestly, 
if you look at this store and you feel like there's something here that you want to explore, it's reflecting something in you. It, it really is. I mean, you can't look at a book and say, I, you know, there's a story of an old man who lusts after a 10-year-old boy. There's something important here that's not a reflection of yourself. Yeah, in 2021, this is what we're really struggling with. I think this is something that we, you know, the woke culture will get the backlash, but there's something here that we need to explore. And you know what? If that is what's happening out there, then I don't know. I'll live in my bubble and I'll ignore it. But uh, yeah, is it a reflection of the individuals, a reflection of culture? I don't know, but I, I don't want to see it. I just want to be very clear and be on record. Dave hates white girls. <laughs> you said it here. <laughs> Verbatim is what you just said. Wow. <clears throat> so anyways, uh, okay. I can't believe well, it's been remade that time, that many times. Well, that's what Dave and I thought. What do you think? You can send any feedback to Kyle and Dave vs the machine at gmail.com. Honestly, I, and I truly mean this. If you've seen this movie and like love it, you need to break it down for me and be like, Kyle, you're such an idiot. This is why this is such a great movie. Um, I won't believe you, but you can still do that. <laughs> you can also find this on Twitter or Instagram with the handle KDVSTM. If you want to see the entire list of films that we have watched and the ratings we've given, you can go to our Letterboxd page, letterboxd.com slash KDVSTM. And if you want to support us monetarily so that we can continue doing this podcast and pay those legal fees for when we get sued uh, and not usher in this uh, next apocalypse, you can go to our Patreon page. There's a link in the show notes of this episode. You can support for as low as $1 per month. Of course, we do not want you to donate if it in any way causes you financial hardships. Something you can do for absolutely free is to leave a rating and review on whatever app you use for podcasts. So let's get to the rating of this movie. Dave. Out of five, what are you going to give this movie? Oh, I don't know, Kyle. From a suggestion to other people, it's a point five. From just, I, I just don't know if I should go to a one because it's got good cinematography. <laughs> uh, and uh, I don't know. I don't know. I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna defer. I, I don't know how. I, I'm just realizing how much we're spitting into our mics, and I. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're not very COVID friendly here right now. <laughs> This is what I had to look at, Dave. I gave Sweet Sweetbacks, Badass Song, a one. Yes. Basically because I felt like the movie itself was a 0.5, but for its like cultural relevance and what it was able to do, okay, I'm going to give it at least a 0.5 extra grade. I kind of did the same thing for this one, which is like, honestly, it's a 0.5 for me. And because I did like the music and I can say like, I can, as objective as I can be, I love the cinematography. I'm just bumping it up an extra 0.5 because of that so i'm giving it a one yeah i hated this movie dave i know and I, you know what's so hard is uh are we critics or are we humans kyle <laughs> <laughs> are we dave are we human or are we dancer <laughs> um that's the eternal question dave <laughs> i don't know you know, I'm going to do a 0.5 because uh, okay. I'm supposed to be the bitter one and we'll round <laughs> down and, and it's fun just to be a dick. So you're not going to watch this movie again is what you're saying to me, Dave. I'm going to suggest that nobody watches this movie and this is a pleasant mm -hmm. warning from your friends here beside this machine <laughs> yeah. that you can skip this one and all of its iterations. Um, so then, this to be perfectly frank, are we comfortable rating this below Sweet Sweetbacks, or do we want to put it above Sweet Sweetbacks? Uh, you know what's hard about this is that, again, from a score and a visual 
like technical cinematography yeah. thing. It's a much superior film to Sweetback. Yeah. Sweetback has moments that are more offensive, but at least Sweetback is trying in its own way to give voice to civil rights, uh, black empowerment, point a finger at what was culturally inflammatory at the time. Um, so I will put it below because I do not see how this movie is successful at anything close to a theme that I give a shit about. Uh, mm. So I would put it below, even though it's prettier to look at, yeah, as a okay. as a film, as a technical film. Yeah. I, I look forward to you painting your face white, dyeing your hair. We do joke a lot about uh, white facing, and now that mm. I've seen it, I won't joke about it ever it's again. Mortifying. <laughs> Well, I guess it's time to figure out what we're going to be watching here next week, Dave. Oh, push this good. button. Oh, we get to go to Russia. We were in Venice. We're going to skip over just a little bit over into Russia. And we're going to watch Nicholas and Alexandra next week. Huh. Which I think I don't don't ask me how I know this off the top of my head, Dave. I'm pretty sure it was nominated for Best Picture in 1971. Oh, so maybe we're going on a run of the uh, Best Picture nominees. Interesting. Wait, what, what was the other? Oh, no. Th this will be the first, presumably. This will be the first. Okay, yeah. good. Because if this movie we just watched was nominated <laughs> right, yeah, for an yeah. Oscar, I would definitely I be punching my I think it actually zoo. was nominated for like best costume design or something like that. <laughs> oh, but... For best white facing. For best white facing It was running. Movie. It wasn't even that good. And burning this man's skin. <laughs> and burning skin. his face. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. What do you want to do now? Do you, do you want to, you know, swap faces or... Do you know that they're making a uh, face-off too? I was just going to ask, are you John Travolting me? Are, wait, yeah. like, are they bringing back John and Nick? Uh, that is out, uh, not, uh, not completely stated in the news release that I read. And again, we are light years away, so we're getting this news probably later than what people on Earth are. All I know is it's face-off too. It's not a remake, and I don't know if Travolta and Cage are in the movie. <laughs> it would be interesting instead of everybody deep faking how young everyone looks, if they can just create that much wrinkle and aging to mm -hmm. successfully remove while they take their faces off. Is that how it happens? Do they actually take their faces off? They actually did. That was what John Woo actually championed in that movie. They oh, literally John. removed. I started thinking, is that a Michael Bay film? Is it a John Woo movie? It's a John Woo movie. So doves and slow motion <laughs> gunfiring. Now, if they could replace the face of a dove in a human, Ooh. now we're talking. I'd I'd give them my twenty-five bucks. Face dove. <laughs> dove dove face. I can sense the bile building inside of you. <laughs>